I'd like to uh, just take the honor to introduce our guest speaker for uh, this weekend, Mr. Andrew Davis uh, from Wells. He's a member of Malpas Evangelical Church. He and his lovely wife, Pam, have been married, they tell me, for 50 years. So we praise the Lord for his faithfulness in all these 50 years. Uh, they have four children, and they have 11 grandchildren. And uh, Mr. Davis has served churches in New Zealand, Australia, Wales, London, and I think that's it. I don't know if I meant that. That's, that's about that. And so uh, he retired, per se, uh, a few years ago, and now he's serving uh, churches primarily there uh, in Wells, but also serving the church at large as he's doing this weekend. And so uh, the Lord's using him to, um, uh, to help train up ministry men uh, who believe they've been set apart by God for the ministry of the gospel. So it's a, it's a blessing for you to be here with us this weekend. We thank the Lord for both of you. We've been praying for you, and we're eager to see how God will be pleased uh, to use you uh, this weekend. So, thank you. Hear the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ... He does not belong to Him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit That we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, 
so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, Rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We, are, we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Join with me in prayer.
God, we thank you for your glory and we thank you for your desire to reveal yourself through your son, Jesus Christ. And God, we thank you that you have seen fit in your kindness, in your forbearance to send your only begotten son to be made propitiation for our sins. God, we thank you that you did not count our sins against us, but that you caused our sins to be born, to bore for Christ to bear our sins in his body and to shed his blood for our sins, our sins for his righteousness. God, thank you for everything that you've done in glorifying yourself through your children. Thank you that you have adopted us into your family, that your spirit cries out with our spirit, Abba, Father. Thank you, Lord, that the, that the groanings and moanings within are these groanings and moanings that are crying out for the redemption of Christ. And Lord, we thank you that there's absolutely nothing that can separate us from your love because you did not spare your only son. You delivered him over for us all. How can we believe that you would not also through him freely give us all things? God, we thank you. Lord, we rejoice in the kingly reality of Christ and we rejoice in all your kind provision. And Lord, we rejoice in the sweet privilege we have to be able to gather here tonight, Lord. And we pray that you would turn your face towards us in a favorable way this evening, Lord. We, we're not asking for your hand. Lord, we're asking for you to turn your face. Lord, we're asking for you to, uh, to dwell among us in such a way that we seek you and we seek your face and we do so. We seek you in your strength and we do so perpetually. We do so continually. So Lord, we're asking God that you would be kind and gracious, Lord, to remove any barrier that might exist that would present us from seeing you as you are through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we we want to come face to face with you and, and worship you through your preached word this evening. And so God, we're, we ask that you would use your servant, Mr. Davis, this evening. Father, we pray that you would not just anoint this evening, but you would anoint his life. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would strive with us this evening in a favorable way. God, we don't want you to strive. We don't want your spirit to strive against us, to work against us in any way, but to work with us and work for us and work among us in disclosing the things of Christ to us. So um, we, we come, Lord, we come with, with humble hearts and we beg of you to meet with us this evening as we gather together to worship our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Will you not do this, Lord? Would it not honor you to dwell among us as your people? to dwell among us in a, in a way that we are filled up to the fullness with the fullness of Christ. And so fill us up tonight, we, we pray, Lord. Any, anything, God, anything that would be of any hindrance whatsoever, Lord, we pray that your spirit would, 
apply your gospel acts to it and root it out so that we worship you with unhindered hearts. Lord, we, we want you. We want you. We want to want you. So, deal with us accordingly. Work among us accordingly. Glorify yourself as you rightly deserve. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, thank you for the warmth of your welcome. It's good to be here with the Lord's people and to be able to bring these messages from the Word of God. And our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. So we feel as if we're with our brothers and sisters. And though we've never met many of you, we are so glad to be in one great family belonging to our great Redeemer. So thank you. Can we turn this evening, please, to Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. They're the words that Joseph spoke to his brothers after the death of their father Jacob when they came to Joseph to ask his forgiveness for the way they dealt with him many years before. And Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God. But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In the United Kingdom, we have a senior left-wing politician who said recently in an interview that his mother encouraged him as a boy to read Old Testament stories. He was told that these stories contained the stories about kings and prophets. The kings were interested in power. The prophets were interested in righteousness. He said that he much preferred stories about the prophets to stories about the kings. He is um, an atheist, but he was commending to other people the reading of the Old Testament. About the same time, one of our senior journalists said very much the same thing, though she herself, it seems, is also an atheist, encouraging parents to read the Old Testament stories to their children. And you can understand why that is. The stories are incomparable. They are written with great skill. And this is an example of a great story, the story of Joseph and his brothers. Here is a family torn apart by divisions and by tragedies. And yet, they're brought together again in a most remarkable way. Here is a man for whom everything seemed to be going wrong. And yet, he becomes the prime minister in Egypt and is sent by God to save the whole of the ancient Near East from death by famine. And when we read a story like this, we cannot fail, I think, to be moved by the love and concern that Joseph had for his brothers, 
or by the joy of Jacob, their father, when he discovered that his son was in fact alive, or by the family reunion. If, like me, you follow a scheme of reading through the Bible, Pam and I use the McChain form of reading through the Bible in which you read four chapters a day, you can't read this particular story and leave the next chapter until tomorrow. You have to read it right through. It's that kind of gripping story which keeps you on your toes and you're wondering, well, what's going to happen next? It's a wonderful story, as we know. But these stories have a great meaning and a message. And this, I think, is the meaning of the message from this story. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. We trace the evil to the brothers, and they, they meant evil. But in that very evil which they intended, intended, and out of that very evil which they brought to bear upon Joseph, out of that evil, God brought good. Now that's a, a remarkable truth and a wonderful truth. He is the God who can bring good out of evil. That really is the message of the, the Christian gospel because that is what happened in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and in his life and death and resurrection. Men intended evil against him, but God intended great good. Now, I'm sure we're all familiar with that verse that Nathan read to us earlier from Romans chapter 8. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Here in this story, we have an illustration of that truth. What happened to Joseph was bad. You remember what happened to him. He was sold as a slave into Egypt. Then he was imprisoned falsely for something that he hadn't done. And then he was forgotten by a man who ought to have remembered him with gratitude and joy. These things were bad. And yet God had a loving purpose through it. He intended to bring good out of all of that. For Joseph, for his family, for other people living at the time, and for you and me. All things work together for good to those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. Now I take it that we believe that. It's a great comfort to us. However, we do not always see how that is so. We may be deeply perplexed. We may be tempted sometimes even to despair. We may not see how the evil intentions and the evil actions of men can become the means by which good is brought about by our gracious God. I don't know whether you're familiar with the hymn written by William Cooper, one of our English poets and uh, hymn writers. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his dark designs. And sometimes the designs of God do appear to us to be dark. 
Here, we are given just a little glimpse of how, sometimes, God does bring good out of evil. It's only a little glimpse. It's as though the Bible is here holding the curtain back a little bit for us to peep in and see something of the mystery of how God brings good out of evil. And I want us to think very simply about three things that stand out here in the text and in the story. The first is obvious. God works for good in all things. Now many of the things that happen to us are good and wonderful and happy and joyful. We can think of so many examples of that from family life. We are set in this beautiful world. We are given so many things to enjoy from God. There are so many things in our lives that are good and wholesome and happy. And we rejoice in them, I take it. But there are other things that we don't understand, that seem to us to be dark and intricate. And at the time, we don't really fathom what God is doing. Imagine for a moment that you were Joseph, and you were in the pit, and you were sold as a slave by your own brothers into Egypt. Your brothers didn't want you. They threw you away. They cast you off. And you became a slave. Imagine how you would have felt. And then suppose you were totally innocent of doing something that was regarded as being wrong and you hadn't done it. And you were in prison for something you hadn't done. How do you feel? How do we feel when we are accused of wrongdoing and we're not guilty? And then, how do we feel if people forget us? If they say, well, I'll, I'll help you. I'll remember you. And then the time passes and they never do. How would you feel if you were in that position? I'm quite sure that Joseph couldn't possibly have known at the time what was happening to him and how God intended to bring good out of the evil that was occurring. He couldn't possibly have known that at the time. And we sometimes feel the same. Sometimes in pastoral work you're called upon to do some very, very sad and some very sorrowful things. Some very dear friends of ours lost their little girl at the age of six to cancer. Her name was Anne Louise. She was a true Christian. She said some lovely things to her parents before the Lord called her to heaven. She said one evening to her father, Daddy, you are not my father. And he said, well, what do you mean? Well, she said, you're my daddy. The Lord Jesus is my father. And she told her parents that she was going home. Well, she was at home, her earthly home, when she said it. She meant heaven. But then she died. And I conducted her funeral service. It was an unspeakably sorrowful and sad occasion. And yet, God was with us. And God was there. And there was a very sensible realization of his love surrounding us. 
it was difficult and hard. So at the time, it might have been difficult for them to understand what was happening to us. My own nephew, Martin, at the age of 43, was killed in a plane crash. He flew a float plane from a big lake in New Zealand up over the Alps and into the sounds that lay beyond the Alps, very remote territory. Trappers and fishermen, he would fly them into these remote places. And one day, beautiful day, he went up with four passengers and was clearing the mountain as it had been his custom to do so. And he hit a patch of clear air turbulence and the plane came straight down into the mountain. And they were all instantly killed. When his mother received the news, she went out into the back garden and she sang a hymn, All the way my Saviour leads me. Oh, the fullness of his love. Perfect rest to me is promised in my Father's house above when my spirit clothed immortal. And she thought of Martin going up into the sky in his aeroplane and then into heaven when my spirit clothed immortal wings its flight to realms of day this my song through endless ages Jesus led me all the way God was with them but it was deeply perplexing how can a tragedy like that or tragedies like those be part of God's loving purpose how can good conceivably come out of events like that it's a big question. But just think for a moment about the fact that each of these incidents that occurred in the life of Joseph was part of a big whole, like the pieces of a jigsaw or like the threads of a tapestry. Had Joseph not been in that pit, he would never have been sold as a slave into Egypt and found himself in Egypt. Had he not been imprisoned, he would not have been in a position to interpret Pharaoh's dream. Had he been remembered when he ought to have been remembered by the butler, he would have been in the wrong place at the wrong time. So each of those incidents, though very perplexing to him at the time, was part of a great overarching purpose. And as we look back, we can see that. You see what the lesson for us must be out of that. We are unable to judge things by today. Things may be utterly incomprehensible to us today. So we may have to wait. Indeed, we have to wait. The Bible encourages us to wait. We are to rest in the Lord and to wait patiently for him. Habakkuk is told to wait for the vision. It will come. The Apostle Peter in his second letter tells us that the day of the Lord will come, but it appears to us sometimes that his coming is being delayed. But a thousand years is as a day, and a day is a thousand years. So God's timing is always perfect, and he never arrives too late. What we must do when we don't understand is to put all our trust 
in the gracious sovereign God, who is our Father in Christ and in the Savior who died to redeem us. We are to trust him, though we cannot see his hand and do not follow his ways. Faith trusts where it cannot see. And we may well have to wait until heaven for explanations, and I very much doubt when we arrive in heaven that we'll need them. We shall be so taken up with the glory of God and the beauty and perfection of his beloved Son that we will probably not need explanations. I remember some friends, some very dear friends, saying that to me when they lost a daughter at the age of 15. They were devastated. And I phoned them up and I spoke to Ness, was her name, and I said, you know, I'm sure that when we get to heaven we'll have many things explained to us. And she said that to me, well, I don't think I'll need any explanations, she said. It will be enough for me to see my Savior. And that may well be so. In the meantime, in the darkness sometimes, and in the ambiguity sometimes, and in the conundrums sometimes, what do we have? Well, we have God's gracious promises and his abiding presence. Listen to these words of William Tyndale about Joseph. These promises of God accompanied him always and went down with him even into the deep dungeon and brought him up again and never forsook him till all that was promised was fulfilled. Can you see him going down into the deep dungeon? And he has the promises of God with him. And if you know the story very well, you will know that God was continually encouraging him with his promises. So we have the Lord's word and his promise, and we have his presence. And therefore God works for good in all things. And then the second thing here is that God works for good in other people. And we see that so wonderfully here in the story, of course. Joseph's life was bound up with the lives of other people. Your life is. My life is. No man, said John Donne, the English poet, no man is an island. And each of us interacts with other people. We all live in communities and families. We belong to one another. So Joseph's life was bound up with the lives of other people. I remember being present in 1969 at a meeting in London at which Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones returned from illness to, to chair a minister's fraternal. These minister's meetings would be held every first Monday of every month and he chaired them. He'd done that for years but he'd not been able to do so because he'd had surgery for cancer. And he came back to chair the meetings he recovered. We were glad to see him, and he spoke very candidly about his experience during his time of illness and surgery. And he said one thing that I hadn't really thought about properly. He said, I began to ask myself, what is God saying to other people through what is happening now to me? Not, what is God saying to me? We would naturally think of him asking that. That was not the point he made. What is God saying to other people through what is happening to me? What if the pastor, for example, is moved on or called away? What is God saying to the church? 
God allowed Joseph to experience what he experienced for the sake of other people. You see that, don't you, so clearly in Jacob, his father. Jacob had this favorite son. He made this beautiful garment for him. You remember how the brothers were envious and jealous of Joseph? Jacob had a favorite son. God removed that favorite son. Now Jacob had a bitter experience through that. He he had learned something through that uh, bitter lesson. In the goodness of God, the lesson was reversed, as we know. But he was learning something. And then take the brothers. The brothers were doing something toward Joseph that no brother should ever do to another brother. One of them even wanted to kill him, you remember. So these brothers were brought face to face with themselves during the 17 years that they spent with Joseph and their father in Egypt. They were made to face the consequences of their behavior. They saw themselves in a new light and in a new way. That was a very good thing for them. Or take Pharaoh, this king of the great kingdom of Egypt. He was brought face to face with the God of Israel through Joseph and with the wonderful works of the God of Israel who delivered him and his family and the whole of that country and the whole of the ancient Near East from famine. God was doing something through Joseph in the lives of other people. There are so many illustrations of this, aren't there, in the scriptures. Think of Naomi, that lady who went to live in Moab with her husband and her two sons, and then there in Moab, she lost her husband and her two sons and was left with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. What a tragedy, we think. How must she have felt to have been bereaved of both husband and her two sons? And you remember in the story, she decided to go back home because she'd heard that there was bread in Israel. But Ruth went with her. Orpah We are told, kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she went back with her. Through the witness and the life of Naomi, Ruth came to acknowledge the Lord as her God. And the life of that lady, bereaved and sad, though it was, had a profound effect over Ruth. So in the short term, her testimony and life had a profound influence over another person. But in the long term, You will know what happened. How eventually Ruth married Boaz and then a son was born and then you remember how the family line continued and David was born. And eventually great David's greater son. Now Naomi bereaved of her husband and two men in Moab couldn't conceivably have seen what was going to happen. But the Lord God knew He was in control. He was in charge. Think of Stephen, this great and godly man, preaching such a powerful sermon recorded for us in Acts chapter 7. And they took up stones and stoned him to death. And the men who did that put their clothes at the feet of a young man called Saul of Tarsus. He saw it all. And the goads began to work in his conscience. 
And it wasn't all that long afterwards before he met the risen Christ on the Damascus Road and was transformed by the grace of God and became Paul the Apostle. You see, God can work in the lives of other people through what happens to us. Paul himself spoke about that. He said, death works in us, but life in you. I think it's good to think like that, don't you? What effect will my life have on other people? What effect will my faith have on other people? Am I a strength and an encouragement to other people? Am I lifting them up? Am I helping them? Pastors have the privilege sometimes of being immensely helped by members of their congregation, and I certainly have. And I can remember occasions that have had such a profound effect upon me because of the grace of God in other people. I well remember one Saturday morning receiving a telephone call from one of the members of our congregation in London, Dick Pink. Pastor, he said, please come around. I've got some terrible news. His son, Chris, had been returning from his teaching appointment in a place called Cheltenham, coming back to London, and he'd hit a patch of ice on the road and had slid off the road into a tree and been instantly killed. And the policeman had arrived at eight o'clock to inform Dick and Moira. And I went around to his home. He threw his arms around me and he hugged me. The Lord gave, he said. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I can't tell you how much that's meant to me. God's grace, God's omnipotent grace. So we have an impact on other people. There's a young man, a pastor in South Wales, brought up in a godly home, father a minister. And this young man, now a pastor, not a Christian in those days, saw a big funeral in the churchyard of the church where his father was the pastor. He came home from school, went up to his bedroom, looked out of the window and saw this big funeral. It was the funeral of a man by the name of John Thomas. He died at the age of 41. He would have succeeded Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel. He was such an able man. Suddenly, he had a brain hemorrhage and died. And at that funeral, his widow, Mrs. Thomas, stood and sang. And as this young man looked out of the window and saw her, he saw something of Christ in her. Her dignity, her poise, her calm assurance of the God's love. And he knew that he didn't have that. And it was the first step in his conversion. We don't know what effect we have on other people. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Our sight is limited. And it's worth asking ourselves, isn't it, am I an encourager of other people's faith? 
Am I lifting people up? Well, what a privilege and a joy it is to do that, to help one believer a little way along the road to heaven, his ultimate work. That's the second thing here that stands out, I think, very clearly from the story. God works for good in other people. And then the third thing, it's obvious, I think I've already touched on it. God works for good in us, in us. He does something in us through the things that are apparently bad. And we see that, don't we, in Joseph. Here was God preparing him, making something out of him. Through all that happened to him, he was being made into a wise and learned and appropriate person to lead the Egyptians and the whole of that part of the world to salvation from famine. He would not have been ready as a young man. He learned wisdom. He learned wisdom the hard way so that eventually he was the right man in the right place at the right time. A wiser man, a better man. Have you ever read that sermon of Spurgeon's supposing him to be the gardener? It's a very interesting sermon. It's obviously based upon the experience that Mary had in the garden when our Lord risen from the dead came to her. She thought that the Lord was actually the gardener. And Spurgeon has this great sermon entitled Supposing Him to be the Gardener. And he, he compares the Lord with a gardener. He says the Lord is like a gardener. And uh, he, he has to deal with us sometimes, like a gardener dealing with a rose bush. He has to prune away the, the, the dead wood in order that there may be no more blooms and more flowers. He takes, as it were, the divine secateurs. I, I don't know whether that's a word that means anything to you um, in Mississippi. You know, one of these um, implements that you use with the sharp, two sharp blades to cut out the dead wood and to, uh, to, to, to cause them... Um, the, the, the plant to grow. We call them secateurs in England. We have this, this, fun, this funny language in England, you, you will understand. <laughs> and and Spurgeon, Spurgeon talks about the, the divine secateurs, and, and God goes through our lives with, with the twin blades of, of affliction and instruction. And through instruction and affliction, he cuts out dead wood, and he, he causes us to grow. The affliction is as important as the instruction. Sir Francis Bacon, uh, another English poet, I hope you'll excuse me for, for quoting these English poets. Afraid I don't know any from Mississippi. <laughs> but this, this man, Sir Francis Bacon, he once said that, again, the language is old-fashioned, but I think you'll understand it, prosperity doth best discover vice. That means prosperity can lead to vice. And then he added, adversity doth best discover virtue. In other words, through adversity, often we become stronger, better people. And that is a lesson, I think, from this uh, story. God is making something out of us. He is conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. He is a wise father who is wisely and graciously and firmly making us more and more like Jesus. That is 
really the purpose of redemption and salvation. As Paul tells us there in Romans chapter 8, that we may be conformed to the image of his dear son. Not just, you notice, informed, not even reformed in the way we live, but transformed, that we might be made like Jesus. The word conformed there means transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And surely that is the lesson here from Joseph, God was making him to be the right man in the right place at the right time. And God is doing that with our lives. It's a refining process. I mentioned this church in London where we were, and nearby there was a big gold refining company called Engelhart. And one of our men worked in this gold refining factory, and they would take gold and they would put it into a big smelting pot and the temperature would be raised to the right kind of temperature to melt all the gold and then the gold would be poured out and the slag would be discarded and the temperature had to be just right not too hot not too cold just the right temperature for the gold to melt so that it could be purified and the Lord we are told in the book of Malachi sits as the refiner of the sons of Levi. He is all attention when we are being refined. He gives all his time and attention to us. He's not indifferent. He's there with us, controlling the temperature, making sure that there is pure gold of trust and faith rather than the slag of unbelief and doubt. It's the same picture. So God is working good in us. Those are the three great truths, I think, that we can see here clearly in the story. Now, of course, what we are to do when we are in darkness and not sure what is happening to us is to trust God, as I've said. And then we are to think of other people. And then we are to think of the way God is blessing us and using our lives in the way that he intends to. But you might say, yes, that's all very well looking back. You can only really read providence properly backwards. How, how do I know that's true today? It's easier to say that from the perspective of looking backwards, but what about when Joseph was, was in the pit? What about when he was in the prison? I'm in trouble at the moment. I don't understand what's happening to me right now. So I haven't got that perspective. I can't look back. Joseph as the prime minister could do that and everything had gone well for him now and he knew that God had prospered him and he was in this position of advantage. But I'm not. I'm in darkness. I'm in distress. I don't understand. I can't look back. So is this true now of me? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Can that be true now at this moment in my life? Well, you will remember the reading again and that beautiful verse. Let me quote it. Once again, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. 
But you see, that verse comes in the middle of an argument. And the very next word says, for. How do we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose? For. For. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's the purpose of redemption, to make us like Jesus. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. God has a purpose, a great purpose to bring us to glory, to make us like his son, so that we are no longer the self-righteous, self-willed, self-centered, self-pitying people that we are by nature, introspective and introverted, but we are now being made like our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the whole purpose of redemption, of course. And the purpose of God is to do that. That's why he predestined, that's why he called, that's why he justified, that's why he glorified. So Paul adds, what shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? But you say, how do I know that God is for me? Granted that he has this great purpose, that he is working good out of evil for my sake and for the sake of his people, but how do I know that God is for me right now? Well, he that did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? We know God is for us because of Jesus and because of the cross. That's how we know. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. You meant evil against me. God meant it for good. He was taken by wicked hands and crucified and slain. But it was according to the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God. God gave his only son for us. And his son came into the world to die the accursed death of the cross. To take our place. To take our sin. To bear the wrath of God upon our sin. To turn the wrath of God away from us and to bear it upon himself. To deal with all the consequences of sin. Ultimately in ourselves and in the cosmos. If God did that, if God gave his only son for you, then will he not with him freely give you all things? He's done the big thing. He's done the great thing. He's made atonement for sin. He's dealt with the enemy. He's conquered death and hell. He's propitiated his own wrath in, in the death of his son. Well, if he did that, if he did that, he'll be with you right through to the end. He'll bring you straight home to glory. If you want to know about the love of God, 
Stay at the cross. Don't move away from it. Stay at the cross. Look at Jesus Christ. No longer on the cross, thank God, but now living and reigning and coming. But the Jesus who died on the cross, he's with you. So God is for you. God is most certainly for you if your trust is in his beloved son and your confidence is in him. In other words, providence comes after grace. Grace comes before providence. I cannot read his future plans, but this I know. I have the smiling of his face and all the refuge of his grace while here below. Enough. This covers all my wants and so I rest. You don't understand what's happened to you? You don't understand the ambiguity apparently of what's happened to you? Come to Jesus Christ. Come to the cross. Look into the one who died there. Remember that he, the father who loved us so much, gave his one son for us, his only begotten son for us, and that if he did that glorious thing, then he will help you every step of the way to heaven. That's wonderful. It really is wonderful. There is no name like the name of Jesus Christ. There is no place upon which we need to stand but beneath the cross of Jesus. There is no blood than his precious blood that can take away our sins. And even though we don't understand everything that's happening to us, we know that. And if we know that and we know him, then we can really say with confidence, it is well, it is well with my soul. Can you say that this evening? Can you say with confidence, yes, men did intend evil against God, but God intended through that very evil to bring about good. Good for the Old Testament saints, good for New Testament saints, good for me, good for all believers in space and time. And that great good came about through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain. Free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. Oh, may the Lord God himself keep us there. And may Jesus Christ become more precious to us every day so that we can say with confidence, if God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can take our stand beneath the cross of Jesus. We thank you that there heaven's love and heaven's justice meet there righteousness and peace have kissed each other. There we are secure, there we are safe. 
May we never wander away from him. And when we do not see the way that you are taking us, help us to trust you. Help us to shelter beneath the wings of the Almighty and to know that you are a gracious God, you are our Heavenly Father, and you will never leave us nor forsake us. We praise you for that, and we pray that you will draw us ever closer to our Lord Jesus so that we are taken up with him, and we love him, and we serve him, and we look forward to the day when we shall see him as he is and be like him. Hear us for his dear name's sake, we pray. Amen.